Hi there. Hey, how are you? Hey, good. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, all good. You got me all right? Yeah, you sound fantastic. This is great. So thank you so much for being here. Uh, I'm speaking with Jim. I'm pronouncing your last name Cardillo. That is correct. All right, man. And I think you're in New Jersey, right? I am. Yep. Yeah, I'm in Princeton, New Jersey. So we're sort of uh, Jersey, um, <laughs> Jersey friends and we're, we're, we're music friends. Um, that we are. <laughs> uh, so let me just tell people that I, I know Jim through um, really the music world. And we're both big uh, supporters of Michael McDermott, the great singer-songwriter from Chicago. And, you know, I realized that you have an interesting story with the, in the music world. And uh, thank you so much for, you know, I just wanted to kind of have a conversation with you about your sort of uh, trajectory in the music world and where, where you are these days. And um, I kind of read a little bit in your bio that you, you say you've been like 30 years in the music industry, sort of. Um, is, that, is that accurate? Yep. Yeah, no, it's probably actually more than 30 now. But yeah, it, I, I spent a good solid 30 years. Um, yeah. I started, you know, when I was in high school, I, you know, I got the bug. I was playing in bands, you know, from a young age. I realized pretty you, early on that I... Uh, yeah, go ahead. Huh? Uh, yeah. I was just no, I just... Did you, did you grow up in, uh, in New Jersey? In Queens. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Yes, yeah, so I was in uh, in Queens, New York, and uh, you know, just started early on. But I I realized pretty good enough to you know cut it as a singer songwriter guitarist kind of thing. I was you know in a bunch of bands and, and writing songs and kicking around. Bug bit pretty hard. Um, right. I was I would go to any concert I could go to and and just you know looking at these. I, I need to be involved with this. I need to do this. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I started putting out a, a fanzine when I was in high school, and I, you know, interviewing, uh, doing record reviews and stuff like that. And, uh, got a gig as a club DJ and started spinning records in clubs. And, um, was a club called Rockaways in Rockaway Beach named uh -huh. after the remote song. And, uh, and they would have the Ramones and Twisted Sister and all these bands play there. And I was the, the DJ between their sets. Nice. And, uh, yeah, so it was, it was a good start. And I was a, you know, a club DJ for, you know, seven years while I was doing other stuff. Yeah. And then uh, got into college radio when I went to college and WNYU in New York at New York University Station. Oh, wow. And, uh, that was a, a pretty amazing thing. And, and, bec and being in New York got access to a lot of artists as they came through. So, um, yeah, it was the, the early new wave days and, uh, the sort of prime time to be in New York. And, um, yeah, know, had a, you know, I had a good time. I mean, I got to interview and, and meet a bunch of folks, kind of, um, set me on that path and made me want to do it more yeah um yeah and again you know interviewed everybody from opera to the ramones to the reed to you know just uh wow. you know the alarm it was a lot of different, different artists along the way yeah and uh then uh i had contacted a rep at island records at the time because i was having trouble getting it's from island and uh, and the gentleman said to me, uh, we don't really have someone doing college radio right now. You know, why don't you come by the office? And, and, and they were right down the block from from NYU. They were at Fourth and Broadway at the time. OK. And, uh, so I went up to Island one day and to pick up my like, you know, what are you doing in school? What are you doing besides the radio thing? Because why don't you start interning here? And you can start, you know, working on the college radio stuff. Mm hmm. And that was my first record company job was Island Records. Island and Records. So that that what year was that? That was like early nineties or mid eighties. This is mid eighties, yeah. So yeah. interesting. 
Um, did you cross paths with Peter Peter Himmelman? Because uh, I think he was Island Records, wasn't he? Yeah, he was there just. I think we they started putting out his records just probably as I was leaving. I think he was oh. a little after my time there, but uh, you know my okay. First, you know my first couple of months on the job was this amazing time in alternative radio and college radio where you know, my first record, the first week on the job was U2. You know, wow. so I had, had, you know, I was working Unforgettable Fire. Wow. I had uh, uh, Tom Waits, The Long Riders, Frankie Goes to Hollywood, Grace Jones, Sly and Robbie. I mean, it was so insane. so when yeah, so when you say you worked, what specifically did you do? Like for let's say you two, Unforgettable Fire, did you? Did you what? What was your specific sort of you know job with that? With that, um, you know, I was I was basically you know servicing college radio with the records at the time. This was advent of CDs, and they weren't sending CDs yet to stations. Uh, okay. I was calling st- stations each week and asking them if they were playing the record and and promoting the ch- working up the, the chart positions and you know gotcha. was, you know gotcha. it was pretty you know. I, and then if there were younger bands, like, you know, it'd shriek back on, you know, they would send me out on the road with them and I would, you know, kind of take them to radio stations and wow. take them around, you know, and, you know, so I was this, and I, I didn't even have a bank account at that point. They had to teach me how to open it. <laughs> um, and I was wow. like on the road with shriek back when they opened for Simple Minds. Was, oh wow! Yeah, you know, out on the road for you know a week and a half. Wow, uh, was that? I don't really know Shreveback that well. They were they had a few. Uh, they opened up for Simple Minds at the time. Yeah, they opened up for Simple Minds at the time. They had probably one big college radio hit, uh, Nemesis. Yeah, um, yeah, and some Michael Mann films. They were like Band of the Hand and and Manhunter, a couple other things. I think that they appeared in soundtrack wise. Yeah. Um, they're- they're Australian, uh, English, English. Okay, gotcha. Okay, yeah. yeah. There it was uh, Dave Allen who used to be in Gang of Four, and okay. uh, Barry Andrews who used to be in X. Were in that band. Yeah, so you got you you got close to some people like actual band people, right? So that was an interesting like time to to be like you know befriend these people and see how crazy bands can get and all that stuff, right? Oh, it was insane. I mean, it was <laughs> it was an eye opening. Uh, you know, on that shriek back tour, there was uh, you know this this incident backstage where they're oh, and this is like my first time on the road with a band, and they're on a big tour, and you know, and 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 one of the guys in the band you know started doing Bruce Lee in person and karate chopped a table full of bottles. And uh-huh. next thing I know, there's blood all over the place. Oh, no. And, uh, you know, we're looking at the hospital in Evanston, Illinois, at like 10 o'clock at night and no, uh, like in November. And it's like freezing cold and it's yeah. flush on the ground. And I'm just, you know, trying right. to keep his hand from bleeding yeah. all over the place. So that was my introduction to the, to the record business. <laughs> That's a lot of fun. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> uh, that's crazy, man. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm sure. I mean, that's the thing. You probably have so many great stories, and you know, like I know it's probably hard to just pull them out of your. So anyway, let's go. So let's continue. So you're sort of okay. So now, what's the next sort of step in your in your <laughs> step was? Um, I ended up going to MCA Records as a as a publicist. Um, okay, which was a, a little of a left turn, but it was an opportunity there and i ended up doing it and um you know it was it was pretty cool because the the new york office was you know the satellite office they were based out of los um being in new york you know you really got to work on on a lot of the artists that they had there and you know helped out and the stuff that kind of crossed over you know, that was too much for my boss to handle or things that fell off her plate or things that she just didn't want to deal with ended up in my world. So, you know, aside right. from all the 
you know the the rock and and, and hard rock bands like you know Keel, um, Triumph, and things like that, and you know, uh, Alice Cooper, Kane Roberts, Boston. I uh, uh, let me stop you right there. You know, I I grew up in Israel, and uh, I had uh-huh. an uncle, uncle that worked at RCA Records. I would get a lot of RCA records, and Triumph was one of the bands on RCA, right? I think. Um, yep. And I was I I grew up on Triumph Records and nobody, especially in Israel, knew who the hell they were. But um, every time I played Triumph, they were like, "Who is this guitar player?" Did you did you get to interact with them personally? Just curious. A, a little bit, not a lot. I mean, there were bands that I worked with, you know, much more closely to them when they were in town. I would see, I would you know, set up some tour press for them and stuff. Yeah, didn't, didn't okay. work with them day to day a ton. Um, Canadian, right? So it's a different yeah. Thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, Alice Cooper was a lot of fun to work with. Okay. Um, you know, had a crazy time with him in 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 one night, so that was uh, a memorable experience. He doesn't strike me as the most normal of guys, but uh, I don't really know him. <laughs> he is actually. I mean, it's you know, okay. it's it's very you know, he's a, he's a very nice guy, and yeah, it was very easy to work with. That's nice. That's nice. That's yeah, because sometimes sometimes people have a crazy persona on stage, and they're like really nice in real life, right? Yeah, and that was you know when we were, um, you know the the time I was with him in Philadelphia, uh, just ended up being a, a a crazy bad night of circumstances. But basically, what happened was, you know, Alice went to his hotel in in Jersey. I think it was he was staying in Cherry Hill um, mm-hmm. at the time, and he went to go take a nap that afternoon and he had his snakes with him in a carrier and he put the carrier in the closet and and looked and and opened up the the carrier so the snakes could stretch out and you know Uh kind of get some some room there and then he woke up from his nap and went to the closet and the snake was gone wow and (laughs) what he what he didn't realize was there was a small vent in the closet oh no that the snake crawled into um (laughs) and so now the snake's gone this is the snake for his show this is like one of his you know right pets here yeah and so they they send his assistant this guy brian was nicknamed renfield of all things um, to go to the local pet store and buy some mice Uh uh-huh uh yeah so he brought this like you know bunch of mice to the to the closet trying to entice the snake to come out of the <laughs> event right. um, and then you know and the snake didn't come out so now we're you know now alice is having to you know use a backup snake for this for this show and you know it's it's this whole thing but now we're in the position of how do we tell the hotel by the way you have yeah. a huge snake in defense yeah. So, yeah. Um, it was decided that you know Alice should check out of the hotel and be across state line conversation. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and then we called the hotel and broke the news to them, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they didn't take it very well. <laughs> right. Uh, they were a little upset and and asked him not to return there, and. Uh, and that was pretty much it. But I just remember just the utter panic and just things that you just wouldn't think of in the course of a normal day. Like, oh, yeah, we're going to be at the store to see who has points around. Yeah, that's unbelievable. That's unbelievable. <laughs> it really is. That, oh, wow. That that would stick in my mind, too. I, I bet that snake is still alive somewhere. It, it probably ate well in that hotel, I'm thinking. <laughs> there was wow. probably a lot of Cherry Hill for that snake to find. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my God, Alice Cooper. That's so crazy. Yeah. So MCA Records, interesting, right? Because that was that was so now now it's the nineties, right? Are we talking about? Uh, we're still in the eighties at this point. Okay. I, oh, okay. I, you know, I still, you know, this is, you know, at that time you kind of, you know, you moved around quite a bit. Like I, I knew, you know, I want, I knew I ultimately wanted to end up doing a, wanted to sign bands, I wanted to scout bands. That's where I wanted to end up. End yeah. Up. Yes, how, how... and you know, and so I kind of was making these hops and these steps to try to get somewhere that I could do that. 
Yes. And, uh, you know, in the meantime, I would get as, as much experience as possible in these other departments till I eventually got the opportunity. So, you know, after MCA, I ended up going to um, an independent marketing company called Concrete Marketing. Okay. They, uh, they specialize primarily in, in heavy metal and hard rock acts. Okay. Um, and we did all the retail stuff and the, and the retail contest and the promotions and the, you know, the sales charts and, you know, dealing with all that um, and writing marketing plans for the labels and doing a lot of different things. But, it, but basically, Concrete was the only one doing, you know, heavy metal marketing at that point. Right. So, yeah, this was, you know, the heyday, you know, the metal scene really starting to thrive. Yeah. And there wasn't a record that came out that we didn't work. It was, it was every band from Ozzy Osbourne, Queensryche, Guns N' Roses, every hair band, Winger and Cinderella. And it just, yeah. The, you know, the list went on and, you know, um, suicidal yeah. tendencies, a bunch, you know, all of that. And then we worked some, you know, non-metal records as well, like, you know, Jimmy Buffett and Tracy Chapman and Melissa Etheridge. Wow. Yeah. Um, so, you know, Jane's Addiction. We got to do some really cool things. Yeah. And uh, and then from from there, with the idea of doing um a heavy metal convention because there really wasn't anything like that at the time. Okay. And we created nations forum in 1988 and, you know, we did it in Los Angeles and, and the first year we had like a thousand people there. The thing sold out. It was insane. Wow. And, um, you know, we ended up with, you know, all these guest speakers and we did panels and we did concerts at night. And so I just organized the whole thing from soup to nuts and, doing production and everything wow. and um it was you know, it was this unheard of idea at the time but it ended up taking off and they did it for years afterwards oh yeah that's great it's kind of like a comic con for heavy metal huh pretty much yeah it was it was bedlam it was and we had a lot of fun doing it yeah um, yeah okay and then you know i got to that point and i was like they you know they wanted me to do the convention for the next five years and I was like, five years of doing a thing? Now that'll take me off my track. I can't do that. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, and and I was like, I, I move. I got to do something else. So um, the opportunity came up. The MCA contacted me to go run their alternative and metal marketing department in Los Angeles out of the out of the home office. Okay. And uh, and it was just weird. I mean, I didn't even have time to think of it. It happened over. Uh, a Ju- over the July 4th weekend where they were they were like okay this was like they contacted me on a Thursday and were like you start Monday we're flying you out leave your stuff we'll send movers to get it later oh man wow, <laughs> and, wow. And, that, and I I ended up moving to LA for 20 years after that wow that was your first time living in LA huh Yep, I just upped and left and, and ended up, uh, you know, working for MCA Records. And, you know, that was, a, you know, again, a, an interesting time. It was, yeah. you know, the, the, roster, the roster wasn't the, the greatest, it was, especially on the metal side. There was, yeah, you know, they never had the, the coolest bands in that area. Right. Um, you right. Know, on the alternative side, it was pretty cool. There was, you know, we got to do some some fun things with like Oingo Boingo and, okay. um, you know, even some some new country artists like uh, you know, Lyle Lovett and yeah. Steve Earle and Nancy Griffith. You know, so we got to work some of that. Right. And right. Um, yeah, and then on the rock side, they had, uh, you know, I'm trying to remember Law and Order, Spread Eagle, Pretty Boy Floyd. It was. Yeah. You know, so it was, you know, I did that for a bit. Yeah. Um, and then, you, you know, started over- sign, you started to sign bands in L.A. Is that when you first signed your first band? No, at that point, I'm still, you know, firmly entrenched in marketing. OK. Um, but what happened was while I was at MCA, um, you know, MCA, like all you, most of the publishing arms, music publishing divisions. Mm-hmm. Um, so MCA Records had MCA Music. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, the gentleman who was the, the VP at MCA Music at the time used to come downstairs to, to the label. And he would always kind of, you know, pump us for information. And, you know, is this a good band to sign? What do you think? Are you guys going to do something for this record? Is this a priority? Is this? And he would kind of feel me out on if I thought he should spend money on a particular band. Okay. And, and I was always very honest with him. Um, and I would just tell him, you know, don't do it. You know, it's th- right. that's going to be a dog. We're not going to sell this record. It's not going to be, right. you know, save your money. Right. And, and he was like, you sure? Because, you know, so-and-so is telling me this is a priority. And mm-hmm. I was like, I said, he, he's the VP of marketing. He tells you every record's a priority. Is, <laughs> right. You know, if you want to blow 150 grand on this, go ahead. But I'm telling you right now, you're going to lose money. Yeah. And so he he listened to me on, on two particular deals. Okay. And he was very thankful because it ended up saving them, you know, well over $300,000 on doing those deals. Right. And, um, and he was like, wow, you really know your stuff. And I was like, yeah, I know. (laughs) I've been telling you. (laughs) So, um, he ended up leaving MCA music and going to Warner Chapel music. Okay. And Warner Chapel music was the music publishing division it was the world's largest publishing company at the time. Okay. And um, he contacted me when he got there and he said, Hey, I want you to um, come over here and, and do what you do. Okay. And I was like, I said, what do I do? He says, you know, you know, bands, you know, things you could tell if a record's going to be a hit or not. You, get, yeah. you know, just like whatever it is that you do, just, I want you doing it here. <laughs> and, uh, and I was like, okay, that sounds pretty cool. <laughs> right. So uh, that was my, my first opportunity to do A&R and to sign bands. That's and, okay. That, now you're starting to really like have some power and you have, your opinion is counting. And Yeah, this was you know, probably 1990 now. And, um, Pre-grunge, right? Yeah, pre-grunge. This is, you know, and it was funny at that point because – you know, the one of the guys, one of the A&R guys at, at MCA when I was still there was like, oh, come on, you know, come down to Long Beach with me tonight. There's this band Nirvana playing I want you to see. Yeah. You know, so it was, you know, in 1989, we're going down to, you know, see Nirvana in, in, in Long Beach and in, uh, in this sweaty little club. So, I mean, it was it was starting to percolate underneath, but yeah, yeah. it was coming. Were you, were you were you blown away by them? By the way, um, yeah, I mean they were they were definitely different, and there was something undeniable about them. Did yeah, anybody at the point, you know, seeing them that night, think, oh, this is going to be the biggest band in the world in in two years? No, right, right, right. You know, it, it, nobody could ever predict any of those things. Right, right, right. Yeah, it was something. Yeah, explosive. That it just happened. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's wild though. It's wild to see a band like that in a small place though. Like starting out, that's pretty incredible. Yeah, I mean, it was it was definitely you know, and it was kind of that that time, you know, late eighties, you know, going into the early nineties. You, you could see anybody on any given night, and. Yeah. It, you know, you would see something crazy. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I'm sure. I'm sure. I mean, I'm sure that snake story is, is just uh, one of one of a million crazy stories. <laughs> there's, there's so many crazy stories along the way. It's just, you know, I know it, was, I, uh, it, it, it just happened. I like I remember one other one from from the MCA New York days where there was you know, they always use this one photographer. And, okay. and I was like, you know, why are they always use one guy to do all their trade shots? You know, and it turns out that he was the guy that would get them their drugs. Right. You know, and he would like, you know, and you would pick up these, you know, you pick up the proof sheets and it would be in this giant giant bags of pot in there. Yeah. And you're like, okay, now I understand. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah. Wild, that's wild. So so let's go to like signing somebody. Um what was the first band that you signed? 
Um, early on, I, you know, there was uh, a couple of artists that I, I started off with. I, I signed um, the Jim Blossoms really early on when wow. I got to Warner Chapel. So um, you you signed the Jim Blossoms? Yes. I did yeah. not. Yeah, I knew I knew you had a connection with them. I wasn't sure what it was. Wow, that's amazing. And then did they did they blow up pretty fast? No, it, it took time. I mean, there was, you know, with the Jim Blossoms, it was, you know, they were they were live, but they were erratic live. And, right. um, you know, Doug Hopkins, who was the guitarist and, and main songwriter in the band, was, um, you know, dealing with a, a lot of issues and, right. you know, alcohol being the the biggest of them yeah um yeah. but you know there were shows where you know i remember a, a show at the coconut teaser one time you know doug went behind the amp and just puked his guts out you know during the set wow wow you know That's and it was just roll. yeah i mean it was, it was very rock and roll but you're trying to get signed you're like, oh my god who's going to spend money on this yeah yeah i know i know wow yeah so, so um you know, they started, you know, even their first, you know, A&M had put them in the studio with this producer and they didn't get along with the producer and they fought with them. And, and it was, they shelved all the sessions. Wow. They ended up, you know, putting an EP out from it and then they were going to give them a chance to re-record their first album again. But at this point, I mean, it was, it could have gone either. You know, because yeah. they had already spent the money on this EP that didn't work out. Uh-huh. Doug was was problematic, right. and they very easily could have cut and run at that point, and nobody would have thought twice. Yeah, yeah. So they yeah. But they they ended up recording that first record over again. Yeah, so they ended up recording their first album, you know, with a different producer. Um, you know, John Hampton down in Oregon. A tremendous individual, and yeah, he was a very gifted producer. And yeah. um, yeah, and the band got down there, and and again, Doug was in horrible shape, and you know, couldn't really make it through the sessions. And oh, you know, it was it was pretty much put to, in in no uncertain terms that you know either you deal with Doug or you lose your record. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, because the, the label was just like, well, we're not going to do this. We're not just going to keep throwing money at this and, you know, pay for these sessions. And the, the guy can't make it through a session. And, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, Crazy. And so they they sent Doug back home and um, and they got another guitarist. They got Scotty Johnson to come in. Uh-huh. And you know, finish the sessions, and and that was it. And and even once the album came out, it didn't take off. It was, you know, they put it out in. I want to say it was you know early fall, mm-hmm. and you know it was kind of the kiss of death to put out records of new bands during that time. Okay. Um, and I was like, man, this record's going to get lost. It's never going to survive. And, you know, so I ended up doing some marketing stuff for them and, and putting some money into it and just keeping the record afloat until the new year. And then, you know, when the new year started, you know, the label came back to it and was like, you know, this is a good record. Let's give it another shot. And then, you know, the, the next time out, they were able to get HLC up and running, and, and then it started really taking off. Yeah, yeah. So it was just a matter of getting it into radio stations, right, somehow? Well, I mean, it was, yeah, a lot more complicated than that. But, yeah, it was, you know, they found a couple of supporters early on, and uh, okay, you know, there was some, you know, they actually at one point landed a, a good TV spot for them. And, uh, yeah, so it kind of, things started picking up and, and and yeah, did you, did you start to feel like when, when it took off, did it, did people kind of, um, I don't know, how did it affect you? Did you get more money or did you, did people kind of, uh, look up to you, not look up to you, but like, you know, give you praise for finding them, signing them? Yeah. I mean, things started to change. It was, you know, I had a, you know, in the in the first couple of years at Warner Chapel, I had an incredible run. Mm-hmm. 
and and things change pretty quickly you know because you know my first couple of years there i had signed the singer songwriter neil casal yeah um, yeah you know I, who i actually saw know, him once yeah he, he was really good yeah he was he was so good and you know things didn't really go the way we had hoped um yeah. but it, you know i had a great time working with him you know for a lot of years but i had signed neil casal i had signed cracker um it signed wow. soul asylum you sound um, wow i had Better Than Ezra, Ministry, Dream Theater, Kebmo, Albert Collins. You know, wow. it was... Wow. Um, Damn, and man. a lot of stuff started happening. Damn, a lot of those records were... Yeah. So, you know, I had... You know, I had Soul Asylum, Cracker, and the Gin Blossoms kind of all going at the same time yeah that's nice man <laughs> that's 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 a good run yeah so the, you know so things started to change at that point and people started going like okay this guy may know what he's doing we'll, we'll just let him kind of do his thing yeah and um so at that point i kind of had you know freedom to do whatever i wanted kind of nice right you know because right. i did some weird signings that were very untraditional for a music publisher. Uh-huh. Um, you know, something like, you know, Albert Collins, blues guitarist, you know, Kebmo, who was the, you know, at the time they were looking at me like I was insane. Really? Like, you know, because, you know, Kebmo was playing these, he was doing a residency at this small club, Fado Do in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. This place was like underneath the freeway. It was, it was, it was a hole. Yeah, yeah. And um, and I had signed them, and it was just, uh, you know, they were like, "What's this going to do? Like, who's going to buy this record? What are you, yeah. what are you thinking?" Yeah. And there was something just. Re- he was such a great guy, and and I really loved his songs, and I loved his his personality on stage. And yeah, yeah. And I didn't know that it was, you know, I, I wouldn't sit there and be like, oh, this is going to be a big hit, it's gonna, you know. But right. I was like, this is a quality artist that I really like to work with. And, right. you know, it would be cool to have him here. Yeah, 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 for sure. And, you know, then things started taking off. And, you know, the first record came out and everyone's like, wow, this is really great. And then, yeah. you know, oh, Jackson Brown's a fan. Bonnie Raitt's a fan. Wow, okay. You know, yeah. this is going on. Oh, he's, you know. And then you know, Grammy nominations start coming in, and then it's like, oh wow, yeah, okay, you knew what you were doing, okay, cool. Yeah, that yeah, that's a nice feather in your cap. And there were you know other quirky things along the way. I signed Dream Theater, um, which you know for a music publisher, they were like, I, these you know this band has twenty minute songs. Like, who is ever going to use this? <laughs> anything like, what are we going to do with this? And right, you know, I was like, no, trust me, there's you know, this is going to be good. This is going to be a good one. We'll, we'll be fine. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, those things just ended up working out, you know, yeah. ministry, mud hunting, or a lot of, you know, left of center things. Yeah. You yeah. know, when I signed mud honey, nobody kind of thought anything would happen that, and then they ended up on the single soundtrack. And, yeah. Yeah. You know, the, the single soundtrack sold like a million records. It's a healing. It was like, well, okay. Yeah, man, that's awesome. That's so that's so great. I yeah, mean, so. and then and then uh, okay, and then what happens? <laughs> so you're you're riding this nice wave, right? Wave, and then you know, I this lawyer who I had done um, the Neil Casal deal with contacted me, and he said, "I have a band I think you'll like." You know, it looks like they're going to sign with Warner Brothers, so it would be cool if you guys had the publishing as well. You know, you should you should come see them and check them out. Okay. And I was like, all right, I'll you know, we have this relationship. I'll come do it, no problem. And um, you know, Berkeley and met these three guys that were in a band called Green Day. Wow. And um, ended up signing them. And uh, damn. The rest was history after that. Man, that's great. <laughs> I forgot about you. That's amazing, man. Yeah, it was. Um, and again, that's, you know, we talk about these records that explode. And did anybody know? And did you think this? And 
Yeah. Absolutely not. Right. We were like, you know, because whenever I brought in a band, I would sort of have to do, you know, a projection for my bosses. Yeah. How many records do you think this was? How many, (laughs) you know, how many records do you think this was? And with the, when Green Day was working on Dookie, they were like, okay, so how many do you think this could sell? And I said, I think this could sell like 150,000 records. Yeah. And they were like, 150,000? Like, this band's only sold, you know, 10,000, 15,000 on their own on these independent go from, you know, 15,000 to 150,000 just because they're on Warner Brothers. Right. And I was like, yeah, no, like, I think, I think they could do like 150,000 on their, on their, you know, major label debut. I think they would be really, you know, that would be a really solid, respectable number. Yeah. You know, and they were like, okay, uh, you know, and, and you know, the, the advance was going to be higher than that, where we wouldn't really make money at that point. If they had sold 150,000 records, we, we weren't going to see money on it, but like I thought we would eventually come out ahead and it would be okay. Right. And, you know, and then, you know, it's, it started kind of moving. Yep. <laughs> and, you know, when it, when it passed and we were like, holy cow, this is insane. And how do you actually explain that? How did, how did that album explode? God, I wish I knew. <laughs> Just, you was know, it? MTV, it wasn't MTV anymore, was it? No, it really wasn't. I mean, it was just, it just, it just, it it was, it's kind of hard to explain because it was, it was organic. It wasn't, you know, this, this manufactured record company thing of, you know, oh, here, let's wheel out the big machine. I mean, I remember, you know, when I had signed them, they were like, you know, all you really want to do is, is, is good. You know, and, and the label was like, you know, we don't know if we really want you in the road yet. We want you really focusing on the record. And yeah. You know, so they came to me and I ended up giving them money to buy their, their first touring van, uh-huh. um, which was the, the bookmobile van. Okay. That was the, the converted bookmobile that they turned into, a, you know, a, a tour bus. Yeah. Um, and they took that and they just went up and down you know, the East coast and played every show they could. And the crowds got bigger and the word of mouth grew and the shows got crazier and it started snowballing. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, yes, the, the video helped and MTV was a big part of it, you know? Yeah. It just, and when I come around and all that, it just, you know, it really took off, but yeah, there was nobody at Warner's, nobody at Warner Chapel that was going to sit there and go, oh, we know this is going to sell 10 million records, you know? Yeah, yeah. We don't know. Yeah, no, I know. It's, it's kind of mysterious and it's great because it, it, it really is a great record. So there's no argument there, you know? It's then, hard to deny. I mean, it was, you know, it's, you look now and you go, God, this is such a classic album. This is amazing. Yeah. You know, of course it was going to be huge, but... Really, then, none of us had any clue. I know, but when when it happened, did people really be like, "Oh my God, Jim really, really, really knows his stuff now"? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, was, it, it was definitely, you know, it was it was definitely a heavy time. Yeah, um, yeah. Were you, you making know, were you making uh, were you making good money at this point? You know, just because you're having all the success. I was making decent money. I wasn't making money but I, you know it's definitely the most money i ever made in my life yeah um, yeah and did you, and did, I, you, did you enjoy living in la and that whole la lifestyle and everything yeah i mean like the weather was tremendous I mean, sure you know, thanks to to the bands i had signed i i had gotten a a, a really lovely bonus check one year and yeah. uh, and I, I bought a house with it so wow. um yeah. yeah it was you know it kind of was one of those one of those timing things again it was i was living in the same apartment you know since i had moved out to la yeah and the earthquake hit oh yeah Um, and yeah and that wiped out the building that i was in oh fuck um and my apartment was destroyed oh man uh, i lost all my stuff 
Damn. And, Damn. you know, I, at that point, I was like, <laughs> I was looking at houses and I was like, you know, looking to see if there was any earthquake damage from, you know, from the earthquake at these houses. Yeah. And I was like, well, if this house stood up to that earthquake and it's still here and it has no damage, then then it's good for me. I, I, I could live here. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, so I ended up uh, getting my uh, bonus check that year and, and buying a house. And, and that was, you know, probably the, the best thing because I, I had such sort of, uh, you know, PTSD and anxiety after that earthquake. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I know. Dead asleep I mean, in the middle of the night, and yeah. all of a sudden, you know, things start coming down around you, and it's it, yeah, it was, yeah, it's a very crazy thing. Yeah, yeah. I've never been. I've been, I, I, I was actually in LA in '94, but it was after the earthquake, and people were freaking out about it. Um, so I can, I, I, I hear you. Um, you know, this thing, I, there's so many things I want to get to, and this thing's going to cut off in 60 minutes. That's what I get on this show. So um, let's, can we move a little bit to the Michael McDermott uh, area? Sure. Okay. So how did you first get, how did you get involved with Michael? How did, did you know him as a fan? Like, how did that, how that start? Okay. So, um, yeah, I mean, in, in 1990, when I first started doing A&R, um when i was at warner chapel i was like this um friend of mine's like wow you, you know you, you got to hear this guy you know michael mcdermott um we had some mutual friends you know i i knew you know i was friendly with brian Koppelman who had signed michael yeah um brian's best friend ron lafitte at the time was going to manage michael okay and his lawyer, this guy Bill Barrel, um, was working. Was also the lawyer for Metal Blade Records, and I was friends with the Metal Blade guys through Concrete and stuff. Yeah. Um. And so, uh, the president of Metal Blade is like, "You got to talk to to Bill Barrel. He's got this tape of this guy Michael McDermott. You know, and it's he's amazing. You would love him. You know, and um." And I loved the tape. I fell in love with it. And uh, I tried to, to sign him. I made an offer to sign him. And I I honestly thought I was going to get it. I yeah. thought, you know, I, I knew I was friends with Ron. Brian, I'm going to get this deal. You know, this is going to be a life-changing thing. Yeah. And they, you know, <laughs> they ended up went, no, we're, we're going to go with Brian's dad instead. Yeah. Um. And I was like, I was devastated. I was crushed. Did not take the news well. Yeah, it it, it killed me. Um, and I I was I was in tears over that one because I really, yeah, was was so into it and so convinced. Yeah, and you know, and I remember when the when the record came out, um, and and. Yeah, you know, was did moderately well, but didn't go crazy, you know, over the right. top. You right. know, my boss came to me and went, Boy, I bet you're glad you didn't sign that McDermott thing. You would have lost a ton of money on it. Oh, and man. I was like, No, I'm like still really upset about that. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, we, we stayed in touch over the years, you know, on and off. And, um, you know, when I would go to Chicago, I would see him. I saw him open for Amy Mann there one time. Yeah. Um, you know, and you know, but we weren't yeah, we again we would fade in and out for a couple of years. Right. And then um when I got to Koch, I was like which was Velvel at the time, it was Walter Getnikoff who would run CBS. And um they brought me over there as the as the head of A and R. you know, one of the you know, I brought the smithereens over there. Yeah. The Nixons and Ian Moore and you know and and Michael and you know so I wanted to do this deal with Michael yeah and um, reached out to him and was like hey how about we give this a shot yeah and uh, you know he he was pretty skeptical you know he had been burned yeah you know by the by two labels and and was pretty much you know done with the major label thing at this point right but you know thought he would 
give it another shot and trust me with it. <laughs> give it a last last chance lounge. Last chance lounge. One last kick at the can. Yeah, and um, and we've really kind of just sat down and you know collaborated on this thing, and and really, you know, I went out to to Chicago to to hear some songs, you know, and and so he's like, okay, here's you know the stuff, you know, Bourbon Blue had kind of just come out because our deal was taking long to kind of complete. Yeah, and um, well, this is the Bourbon Blue stuff, and here's a couple other things. And I'm like, okay, you know, we're we're in good shape. And he's like, well, if you want to come by the apartment tomorrow, I've got some other songs. You know, check out anything you can. Otherwise, we'll just go with this. Yeah. And I was like, no, we're, you know, like you haven't had a chance to be on a label for a bit. Like, let's try to do this right. If you got stuff to play for me, I want to hear it. Right. And, you know, so I went to his apartment. And then, like, the next day, I just start getting loaded up with tapes. It was like, <laughs> oh, I got this here. Oh, this has got some stuff on it, too check this one out if you want. And, and I ended up, you know, with, with 90 to a hundred songs. Wow. Wow. Just like, you know, and I had, you know, these, I, I remember, you know, transferring the stuff to CDR and, you know, being on a plane, like these yellow legal tabs. And I had like all the songs written down yeah. broken into categories and what was possible and what wasn't possible and what would go together. And, you know, yeah, yeah, and the, and that's kind of how the whole last chance lounge thing came about. Wow, wow, right. So, which was like half of Bourbon Blue and half of the new stuff, right? Yeah, because we didn't really, you know, we didn't have a big budget to do an, a full album from scratch. This was an independent right. label; it wasn't going to be like a big budget. Yes, yeah. you know, we were going to take you know some of the Bourbon Blue things, and and originally Koch was like, "Well, oh, just repackage Bourbon Blue," and yeah, I didn't want to do that after we. And he didn't want to do that. Yeah. And then, you know, he didn't want to do it where it was, you know, one or two new songs and, and forcing fans to buy what they just bought just to get two right. songs. Right. So, like, we really were, you know, the, the the best solution was to, you know, half bourbon blue and, and make it something great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it turned out amazing. I mean, it's an amazing record, like like all of his records. That's very hard to single one out, you know. Yeah, no, it's tough. But there was a lot of, you know, with um, you know, with the with the passing of recently, it, it reminded me of being in Chicago one time, and Michael introduced me to Lynn, and this is you know before Last Chance Lounge and. Lynn was very much like a protective dad of Michael, mm-hmm. you know, and, and he was basically like, okay, you know, don't screw this up. He's telling me, <laughs> you know, right. and he's like, give me a song we could play and, and, and take care of this kid and don't screw it up. Yeah. And, uh, and that was kind of, you know, I, I didn't know Lynn. That's the only time I had ever met him. It was a lot of pressure um, yeah. because yeah. I was like, God, I want to do this right and, and have something great. Um, and, and, you know, having unemployed and 20 miles south of nowhere, having those two songs that XRT was really get behind yeah. um, really made a difference. And I kind of felt like we got it right when when they were able to play those songs. Yeah. I mean, what what an amazing trajectory, McDermott. I mean, his last, you know, he's just going, you know, of course, we all know he's been, you know, doing well and, and sober for, you know, a long time now. And uh, for anybody who doesn't know his record, I mean, like every record is gold, you know, it's more than gold. Like every record is just fantastic. And, uh, you know, it's it's an amazing journey that have you been involved with other records since with him? I know you've done, you know, the the rare, the rare, you know, stuff. Uh, yeah, I mean, we did, you know. Like last chance lounge was was not a pretty time for Michael, I know. Yeah. um, yeah. and and it was it was a it was a different and yeah. and we you know definitely you know it, it, he was sort of in that you know downward spiral at that point went yeah. on for the next five years that kind of got progressively worse yeah um you know but it started then and you know we really didn't work much to get that until you know right. much later on right and then you know with the two uh, you know stories lies and legends collections i did both of those with him 
Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, yeah. And then and I've kind of just stuff with, um, as far as coordinating, you yeah. know, art and, and design stuff for, you know, um, this last album um, for St. Paul's. And, yeah. you know, it's just, you know, it's, it's been kind of fun because the art director from Last Chance Lounge, um, this gentleman, Jeff Chenault, um, who did the two stories, Lies and Legends records, and also uh, St. Paul's. Mm-hmm. And so we've kind of reunited the classic team from yeah. back then to to do these uh, records. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, let me just say that the stories, lies, and the legends are two collections of you know four CDs each. You know, an, an incredible amount of music and uh, and the and the recording quality. I don't know how you did this. Uh, some of the songs, of course, they they kind of vary in quality of the sound. Uh, but the sound, the ones that sound great are like the best recorded versions uh, of Michael, any, any record, like thinking of, um, you know, it always, Sunday always makes me feel a little sad or, you know, a bandana and a cigarette that the sound quality on that is extraordinary. I don't know how you did that. <laughs> Cause I know. Yeah. I mean, it was, yeah. I mean, some of them, again, you're dealing with different source material. A lot of it. Right. Those things, um, we're sort of like new, you know, new old recordings. Some of the, you know, a lot of the stuff on volume two were more recent recorded, like, you know, a, a bit more properly at, at Michael's place. Right. Um, so it was a little different, but, you know, just okay. with, with both of those, um, the mastering process ended up being, you know, really important just because, you know, when you're taking stuff from so many different so many different decades to get it all sound like it belongs together on one record is is really difficult yeah and so the sequencing and the mastering is kind of the the hidden beauty of those two collections um because they really to flow and to get them to sound like they all they sound sound amazing How, how did you go about going about the mastering process I mean, not 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 to, but you know. Yeah, I mean the mastering thing. It's it, it's weird because I I, you know, I worked with some really years over the years of of making records, and yeah. um, you know, when I was at Velvel and Koch, um, a bunch of those records, uh, you know, I, I met this woman um, who was a mastering engineer at the Lodge, Emily Lazar, who is she has won multiple Grammys for record of the year. She's one of the best mastering engineers in history, but you know, 20 years ago, she was a household name. Uh-huh. Um, but I, I learned a lot from sitting in sessions with her. Okay. Um, and then, you know, with, you know, I'm, I'm a, a trained mastering engineer there's people that do it professionally and know what they're doing and right and are great at it i uh, you know basic software on my end and i have a good handle on how to dial stuff up for michael right um, right you know some some settings that lend itself to what he does and okay you know the the records really ended up you know coming out great and said yeah you know, I think yeah. probably, I mean, it, I, probably the best mastering that I've done, and it, is is probably on the house of records. Me just oh, yeah. sounds unbelievable. Christine, yeah, yeah, yeah. I hope there's another, a few of those coming up. I hope. <laughs> I mean, uh, everybody, everybody hopes that they'll see something eventually. You know, it's uh, Eric, I know. Uh, Eric. Uh, Quatron and I just always laugh. We're retired. We're done. No more. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, you know, I mean, but I, I think what you said before that a lot of it depends on the actual source material. So, for example, like bandana and a cigarette sounds so crisp and cool because the original source must have been really good as well. I guess. Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to use that we just couldn't because the we just couldn't get them to sound right. 
Yeah. And, you know, there was some, some outtakes, you know, some of the nineties records that we just, you know, wanted to use and, and just couldn't find a way to make it work. Yeah. And I think we, um, on volume one, there was one song that was, um, really in rough shape. Um, years. Uh, mm-hmm. but it was such a rarity and there was something special about it that yeah. Eric and I really pushed and Troy as well at the time really pushed to kind of, uh, get that on there. And, you know, I even sent it to a friend of mine who was an engineer, a real mastering engineer and got him to, um, take a shot at fixing it. And, you know, we, we got it to the point where at least it was usable. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. you know, sometimes you, you sacrifice the, the perfect sound over the, the rarity of the track. Yeah. Just to have the song. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah those, those collections are incredible, you know, really. And, and I, I'm sure you did. You, you probably had to do a lot of convincing at the beginning to actually. <laughs> <laughs> Understatement. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. But, but you got it. Done, I would man. say, yeah, we got it done. I mean, the, the first one, I think, we probably canceled, you know, four or five times during the process each time, where yeah. it was like, that's it. We're not doing this. It's done. No, I'll... no, forget right. it. And, you know, there was, you know, there were points yeah. where, I, I mean, <laughs> you know, you, you invest 18 months into it. Yeah, and then you're just sort of like, that's it, it's over, it's not coming out, and you're just like, yeah. wow, okay, this is really done. <laughs> but what what was the hesitation? Just because he kind of, kind of got sick of the project, sort of. No, it wasn't. He never got sick of it because, in in both cases, he didn't out early on. Um, right. You know, I would. In both cases, I would not bring him anything until I got about maybe 15, 16 versions in. Wow. Like, I, wow. you know, I think for Stories, Lies, and Legends 1, there was uh, 29 versions. And wow. I think for Volume 2, we were around the same. It was about 27 versions. Wow. Um, and so stuff early on I, I we really you know eric and i really kind of sat down and, and edited and hammered things out and and got them yeah. to a point where we were yeah. and then you know there were times where we were like okay we're done like this thing is ready to go and and then he would just be like no <laughs> and so then you would throw the whole thing out and start over oh um, man you know, after you think that you have this perfect record, so right, definitely some some crazy times. But what what was the what was the hesitation on your part? You think was it the sound quality of the of the recording? No, I think it, there were two problems with this. Really, the the biggest problem was he didn't think any of the songs were any good. You know, right. if that's, if that's they were, yeah, I mean, because if they were, they would have been on an album. If they were, I mean, good to him, uh, they were all great songs. But if he liked them, they would have been on an album. Remotely like them, they would have been on an Orphans collection. Right, I got you. You know, so the fact that they couldn't make an album and they make Orphans and they weren't in the live set. Right. They were garbage to him. So there was no reason to put them out. You know. Make me feel a little sad as garbage. That's one of the greatest songs I've ever heard. <laughs> there's, I mean, there's a lot in there, like you know, Better Angels. There's, there's a ton that I just, you know, I know, I know, adore. I know, I know. I, but he, Michael himself, would say that he's not the greatest judge of his own, you know, songs. You know, um, he will. He, but yet he, he won't give up that control. Yeah, and and trust somebody or ask somebody else: Is this a good song? He will. Yeah, yeah. I know. You know, sort know. of the echo chamber of I don't think it's good. I'm not putting it out. Yeah, um, you just, 
to you you have to override him somehow, man. And, and you did. <laughs> so listen, listen, Jim. This, the way it wasn't pretty. <laughs> yeah, this this is gonna cut me off in a few seconds, man. So I just wanna I, we're gonna do a part two eventually. And um, thank you so much for doing this. Has been so entertaining for me. I can't even tell you. Awesome. Um, thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you have like a website or actually this is going to cut me off right now. So let's say thank you, Jim. And I'll see you down the road, man. Okay. Right, man, thanks. Bye. All right, man. Take care. Bye bye. Yeah.